Well, today we're going to be in John chapter 8, so turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel. And if you've been joining us for any amount of time, we've been going through the Gospels in chronological order, which finds us most of the time in a different Gospel every week as we study verse by verse and chapter by chapter. But we've been in John's Gospel for a couple weeks now, and we're going to continue to be in John's Gospel for the next couple weeks as well. So if you remember, last we saw Jesus in John chapter 7, he made his way into Judea for the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you remember correctly, Jesus, he wanted to go up secretly to this feast because he didn't want it to be widespread known that Jesus was there. However, when Jesus got to Judea, we saw that he, in fact, went into the temple area and preached and taught boldly and very publicly. Well, of course, this caused the attention of the religious leaders who then came and they said, this is not going to happen. And they sent the uh, temple guards, as we read last week, we saw an attempted arrest on Jesus because the religious leaders did not want Jesus to continue to preach and teach his message. However, we also saw that it was not God's will for Jesus to be arrested yet. And so the temple guards, they didn't arrest Jesus. As a matter of fact, their hearts were actually touched by what Jesus was saying. And Jesus showed that he was going to obey the will of the Father and be a bold witness. And it was a great um, example for each one of us. So the last we saw in John chapter 7, the last verse, verse 53, John told us the feast wrapped up and everyone went to their own homes. So let's pick it up in John chapter 8 and let's start in verses 1 through 2 and we'll see what happens next. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So John tells us that everyone went to their homes, but Jesus, he went to the Mount of Olives. Now, this is in northern Judea, and we know Jesus spent some time there. Jesus would teach the disciples here often. We know this before Jesus was betrayed, or before he was arrested, he would teach the disciples. And we see that in John chapter 14 through John 17. Now, John doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus was doing here on the Mount of Olives, but we can gather enough information to know that Jesus often withdrew to a mountain or deserted area to do what? To pray. And so we can assume that it's being implied Jesus, he went to pray and to spend some time alone with the Father. And of course, we know we must be doing the same if we're to continue in the ministry that God has for us. Because ministering and serving Jesus is a nonstop, 24-7 lifestyle. It's not a job. It's not, a, it's not a, a, something you do throughout the week and you have off on the weekend. It's every second of every day. In order to keep on in this ministry and in this race that God has us on, we must be taking care of ourselves, being in prayer and being in the Word. And once again, Jesus models this. Now, we're also told in verse 2 that Jesus went again into the temple. Now, wait a minute. This is fascinating. Because it was in this very temple that Jesus was last week where he almost got arrested. Why in the world is he going back to the temple? Well, we know that despite the risks, Jesus went to do the will of the Father anyway. And what a great example. We saw the Apostle Paul do the same thing. right? He was preaching Jesus. They said, you're not allowed to preach that Jesus. They dragged him out of the city. They stoned him. They thought he was dead. Paul gets back up. And they're like, what are you doing? He said, I'm going back in the city. I'm going back to preach Jesus. There's a need there and I'm going to go meet it. And Jesus exemplified here for us that he saw the need instead of the risk and he was going to go obey the will of the Father no matter what. Jesus didn't keep from ministering due to the risks 
He continued to minister because people needed to hear the message that he was sharing. What a great example and lesson for us today, because many times we have a different perspective than Jesus. Many times our focus is on ourselves instead of others. It's on the risks instead of the need. And there's a great need for Jesus Christ in this city. There's a great need for the gospel to be shared and spread because there's so many lost and so many are going to spend an eternity separated from God because they don't know the truth. So what is your focus on lately? What's keeping you from sharing and doing what Christ has commanded you to do? And God's been convicting me on this every day this week. God didn't call me to serve myself. He called me to serve Him. And He called me to love and minister to people. It's not about me. It's not about self. And this is why at the heart of the gospel, self must be crucified. That's what Jesus said. You need to take up your cross and follow me. Oh, that's pretty contrary to what the world teaches, where they tell you life's about you. It's about doing what you want. That's not what the gospel teaches. Jesus said, you have to take up your cross and follow me. Daily crucify yourself. So Jesus was faithful to minister as God led him. What about us? Let's look at verses 3 through 4. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So the scribes and Pharisees, they come down to Jesus, and it's almost as if they knew he was going to come here. It's almost as if they anticipated him. They knew that Jesus was going to continue to teach, and they wanted to set this trap for him. Right? So they come down, they know that Jesus is blameless and innocent, and they're trying to find anything they can to find fault in Jesus because of their envy toward him and because of their hatred toward him. So these religious leaders, they bring this adulterous woman to Jesus. And notice, where do they bring her? Right in the temple. This is probably the most public place you could bring someone. And if you want to cause a lot of attention, this is where it's going to happen, right in the middle of the temple. And we're told that there was a large crowd of people here. This was a very public thing. And the religious leaders bring this woman to Jesus. And it really implies to us that their hearts were not set on seeing the law upheld. Right? They weren't bringing this woman before Jesus because they wanted the Mosaic law to be upheld and they wanted justice for the sin that was committed. They just wanted to publicly humiliate Jesus and also this woman in the process. Their intentions were to shame Jesus and to shame this woman. And it's really quite sad how we can take the religious leaders and see a comparison to the devil, but it's true, we can. Because in the same sense, the enemy wants nothing more than to shame us and to have us walk and live in shame over the sins that we have committed and over what we've done. And shame's a very powerful weapon of Satan. And it's in his very character, right? He's the tempter. He tempts us to sin. He doesn't make us sin but He tempts us to sin. And once we give in to that temptation and we, we fail, we go against God's moral law, what does the enemy do? He switches to now He's the accuser. And now He accuses you. God's never going to forgive you for that sin you committed. You can sin, don't even bother going to church because they're all going to judge you. You just wait. You, don't, you can't be in church. You can't be around other believers. That's what Satan does. He tells these lies. And he tries to bind us in shame. And shame's a powerful weapon that the enemy uses against us because when we live in shame instead of the forgiveness of Jesus, we're not walking in the freedom that's been won for us on the cross. And a defeated Christian is not a Christian who's going to make an impact. A Christian walking in victory with the hope and peace that Jesus has given is the Christian who the world's going to see a difference in. And so maybe you're here today and you're living in shame over a sin you've committed and repented of, or maybe an addiction that you've had that you've repented of, and you've been in bondage to it, and I just want to encourage you, Jesus took our shame so we wouldn't have to. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, watch this, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus took our shame for us, so we don't have to live in it. So let's see what happens next, and what the religious leaders say next. In verse 5, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? So the religious leaders, they test Jesus by bringing this adulterous woman to him. And they say, according to the Mosaic law, this woman needs to be stoned. Now, this is accurate, according to the law. According to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, God did ordinate that adulterers were to be stoned. So what's wrong here? And why did the Pharisees bring this woman before Jesus? If they knew what the law said, why didn't they just uphold the law themselves? Well, I think there's two things here, and then, well, there's actually three. Number one, the religious leaders didn't have the whole law correct, because the law commanded and taught that if two people were caught in the act of adultery, both were to be brought, both were to be tried, and both were to be stoned. And here we see they only brought the woman. Now, that's interesting, because they said, we caught her in the very act. Well, if you caught her in the very act, why didn't you get the man? That doesn't quite make sense, right? So the religious leaders, they didn't quite have it right. But number one, I believe they wanted to test Jesus' desire for mercy. If you remember, Jesus came and He taught that He was here to be a physician for the sick. He came to call sinners to repentance. In Luke chapter 5, we saw Jesus call Matthew to be a disciple. Matthew was a tax collector. The people hated tax collectors. They hated them so much that they didn't even include them in the category of sinners. They had their own category. People would say, I don't want to be like the tax collectors and sinners. Because that's how repulsed people were by the tax collectors, and that's how evil they thought of them to be. And Jesus calls Matthew, and I love it. Jesus said, Matthew, I'm coming over to your house today. It's pretty amazing. So he goes over to Matthew's house, and guess who? what? Matthew invites his friends, his other tax collector friends, and you know all of his other friends who people looked at as sinners and despised. And he, Jesus, he sits with them, he eats with them, he ministers to them. The religious leaders didn't like that. They came to Jesus and they said, why are you hanging out with sinners? And that's when Jesus said in verses 31 through 32 of Luke chapter 5, that he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he said, it's not the well who need a doctor, it's the sick. And Jesus was showing his heart and why he came. He didn't come to break the law, he came to fulfill it. And this is how he was going to fulfill the law. So the religious leaders, they wanted Jesus to go against what he came and said he was here to do. They wanted him to go against how he said he came to be a a, a physician for the sick. And instead, they wanted him to condemn this woman to death. And likewise, the world wants us to shift our attention off of loving the sinner and hating the sin. They want us to shift our attention off of that. The enemy wants us to hate those who are in sin. When Jesus had a heart to love the sinner, he hated the sin, but he loved the sinner. And this was the heart of Jesus. He saw that people were lost and he wanted to share the truth of the gospel with them. And as Jesus came to minister to the lost, so this should be our heart, to minister and share the gospel with the lost. And in case you need a reminder, there's plenty of lost people in this city. There's plenty of lost people that you encounter day after day. Plenty of people that God is placing in your midst and in your path to minister and share the hope of the gospel with. And don't miss this. The Pharisees, they wanted Jesus to go against his calling. And in the same sense, Satan wants us to go against the calling that God has placed in our lives. And this is why we must be vigilant and guard the calling that God has given us. 
Now, Scripture says the calling is in the giftings of God. They're irrevocable. Satan can't take our calling away, but Satan can tempt us to give up our calling and to walk away from it and sin. And this is why we must be cautious. Now, this, the other reason I believe the religious leaders brought this woman to Jesus and asked if they should stone her was because at this point in history, it was illegal for the Jews to carry out the sentence of capital punishment. At this point in time, they were under the reign of the Roman Empire and they were not allowed to initiate the death penalty. And we know this historically, but this is also backed up in Scripture for us because if you remember in John chapter 18, verse 31, when Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate, the religious leaders say, well, we can't judge him according to our law because it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Under the Roman reign, they could not carry out capital punishment. So if the Pharisees have Jesus initiate the stoning of this woman, more than likely they were going to go to the Romans and say, hey, listen, this guy is going against the law of Caesar. He just carried out the death penalty. When you told us we're not allowed to, you should arrest him. The religious leaders were very manipulative and they were finding any way they could to trap Jesus. And I was thinking about this and I'm like, this is, there's a lot of manipulative thinking that goes into this trapping of the religious leaders. And there's no explanation for this test other than this. They, they just, they hated Jesus. The religious leaders just hated Jesus. We know they were envious of him, but they hated him. And there's no explanation for, for why the religious leaders did what they did. They hated Jesus. They were so blinded by unbelief that they had a hate in their heart for Jesus. And in the same way, this world today, it hates Jesus. Not much has changed. Jesus said to his disciples, listen, the world is going to hate you, but it hated me first. And so the same practice is being carried out today when we live in a world that hates the gospel and hates the message of Jesus. And Satan wants nothing more than for us to be quiet about our faith in Jesus because there's so many who need to hear it. The religious leaders were trying to silence Jesus in the message of the gospel. And Satan is still trying to do the same thing today. To silence Christians, to silence the name of Jesus, and to silence his word from going out. Why? Because this world hates Jesus. And this is why Jesus said, you're in this world, but you're not of this world. Let me ask you, church, are we going to live like the world that hates Jesus, or are we going to live like Jesus? If this world hates Jesus and hates the message of the gospel, why should we live like this world? The Bible tells us we need to put ourselves to death, take up our cross, and live not of this world. Because this world is ungodly, and it hates Jesus. And so many Christians, they want to live one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, and it, that's not how it works. Jesus deserves everything, or we don't give him everything. He's Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. Now, last thing to note here, this, this test that the religious leaders had, it really showed how hypocritical they were, and Jesus often rebuked them for their hypocrisy. And you might say, well, why do you say that? Because in Acts chapter 7, we see the religious leaders carry out capital punishment for Stephen. And they stone Stephen. Now, how would they get away with this? Well, Stephen wasn't really well known. And bless our brother in, in the Bible, if Stephen wasn't written in Scripture, none of us would know who he is. Jesus, he had a very large following. Many people followed him. And his reputation spread all throughout Canaan. If Jesus was stoned, people would have known about it and it would have caught the attention of the Romans. And if Jesus initiated the stoning and the killing of a person under capital punishment, of course, it would have gotten the attention of the Roman Empire. And so the religious leaders were just very hypocritical, and they hated Christ. So let's look at verse 6 and see how Jesus responds. This they said, testing him, 
that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So Jesus responds by not responding. And John tells us he acts like he is, it's almost as if he didn't hear them. Now this is amazing to me because you have to put yourself in the story, put yourself in the position of what's going on here in this event. Jesus is in a very public place. There's a very large crowd. You've got to imagine it. It was very loud. A lot of people were raising their voices, maybe even shouting. The religious leaders were talking and shouting, here's this woman, everyone's getting ready to stone her. Yet Jesus just shows that he had just so much peace. He wasn't phased by the situation. After all, he's God. He knew the situation was going to happen. He wasn't phased by it because of the peace that he had. And that's pretty amazing. That Jesus possessed a peace that no matter what situation he was in, he had peace. He trusted God. He trusted the will and the calling of God. Now here's the amazing thing. This same peace that Jesus had is the same peace he's given us as Christians through the Holy Spirit. And so are you walking and living in that peace? Because that's part of this redeemed and forgiven life we've been given through Christ. We've been given this peace to walk in and to minister with. And this also showed that Jesus' response to these testings was no response. Jesus could have opened his mouth and mouthed off to these religious leaders. He could have told them everything that was in their heart and he could have brought these reviling things against them, but Jesus didn't do that. What a lesson for me to learn from that. Because many times we want to justify ourselves and we want, to, we want to just defend ourselves and make sure that we're in the right all the time. And Jesus, he just modeled. He just didn't answer. What a great lesson for me to learn. He just chose not to respond. Now, John tells us that Jesus, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And John doesn't tell us exactly what he wrote on the ground here. Now, a lot of people believe that Jesus was writing the sins of the people standing there. I don't tend to agree with that. Perhaps Jesus was writing the, the commandments. Perhaps Jesus was writing them to remind the people of what Jesus already taught about these things. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that sin begins where? It begins in the heart. And before sin's an outward expression physically, it starts and begins in your heart. And so maybe Jesus, through writing these commandments and writing the law out for the people to see, they started to remember His teaching and what He already taught them. And if you remember in Matthew 5, Jesus said, listen... You're saying if someone murders a person that they're going to be, they're charged and they're going to be judged. But I tell you, if you have anger in your heart against someone without a cause, you've committed murder in your heart. According to God's moral law, you're a murderer if you have hate and anger in your heart towards someone without reason. Adultery. Jesus said you judge someone if they commit adultery in the physical expression. But according to God's moral law, if you look at someone with lust in your heart for them, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so I believe Jesus, whatever he wrote, he was writing to remind the people of God's moral law and God's standard of judgment. Therefore, according to God's moral law and God's standard of judgment, there was more than just one adulterer you could imagine in that crowd. According to God's moral law, more than likely everyone in that crowd had sinned against him and had committed an offense against God. But these people, they obviously didn't see that. They were just very focused and honed in at, the, at this person who, who was a mess, this person who committed this physical act of sin that they lost sight of their own hearts. And this is a very easy trap for us to fall into as Christians, to look at others in sin and to look at others and what they're doing and how they're failing and falling short of God's glory and think, I'll never struggle with that. I'll never be like them. It's an easy trap to fall into, and it's a trap because every one of us can give in to compromise. Every one of us is one compromise away from sin. None of us are immune to sin. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, he said, Therefore, let him who thinks he stand, 
Let him take heed lest he fall. Don't fall into the trap of sin where you think that you're above sin, that you're never going to fall into sin. We need to guard our hearts daily and remember that we need Jesus. To remember what David wrote in Scripture, to remember what Paul wrote in Scripture, that there is no goodness in me apart from Christ and I need Him. I need Him daily because if I don't have Him daily, I know I'm going to give in to my sin. I know I'm going to give in to the passions of my heart. Do you recognize your need for Jesus? Because living out the forgiven life you've received in Christ means you understand your dependence on Him. You know, you look at Paul, what a great man of God. you know what he said? He said, I know in me nothing good dwells except Christ. David, he was called a man after God's own heart. And you know what he said? My goodness is nothing apart from God. These men, they continued on in the work of Christ because they understood their dependence upon him. Do you understand your dependence on him? And maybe you're here today and you're not saved, you're not a Christian, and you've been trying to earn your way to salvation thinking you can do enough good to inherit eternal life, and you can't. Because our goodness will never atone for our evil. But the great news is, we serve a God who has taken our sins so that we might have life. And if you've been here, if you're here today and you're not Christian, I have great news for you. There is a way to enter heaven. It's not through anything you've done or can do. It's through what Jesus Christ has done for you and what he's done on the cross. So for us as Christians, we would do well to remember that though we're not slaves to sin, we should never underestimate sin. Never underestimate the passions of the flesh and realize we need Jesus. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, the woman standing in the midst. So after pressing Jesus more, Jesus finally rose up and responded to the crowd and religious leaders. And he tells them, hey, he's without sin, he can throw the first stone at her. And once again, we're not told Jesus, he went down, he started writing again, we're not told what he wrote on the ground, but we see the result. We see what happened when Jesus did this. We saw how the people responded. Each person was convicted, and they put down their stones, and they left Jesus and the woman. This is really an amazing picture for us, because they realize that they themselves are guilty according to God's moral law. They realize that, listen, it's not just this woman who's messy, we're all messy, and we all need the grace of God. And that's a great lesson for us, isn't it? I remember before I came to the mission field, I had this idea that missionaries were super Christians. And, and this is really pushed in the Western world, right? If you go back, I'm sure many of you have experienced it. You go back to the States and everyone, they're like, oh, we just want to learn from you, right? Because they have this idea that missionaries are these super Christians. And I had this idea. I, I thought they were. And I thought, I can never serve God on the mission field because I know I'm a, I'm a mess. But God called me, and I said, all right, I'll go. Well, I got to the mission field, and guess what I found out? Missionaries are messy people. And you know what I found out? I'm a messy person. And that's when I realized, and God's continuing to teach me this, we're messy people ministering to messy people. And how many times do we just not want to regard someone who's walking in sin, someone who's in a messy situation? Ministry's a messy thing, and many times we want no part of it, but it's a privilege to be invited into the lives of people. It's a privilege to be invited into these people who are walking through these messy situations and try to walk with them with the gospel through whatever it is they're walking through. Jesus didn't forsake this woman. He didn't say, okay, this is a messy situation. I don't want any part in it. No. Jesus was seeking restoration. Jesus was trying to minister to this woman because God doesn't call us to turn our back on those who are in sin, but to minister to them, not justifying their sin, but to love them like Jesus loves them. 
to show the same grace we've been shown. And this is the key. These people were so convicted because they knew that they needed grace and mercy. And because they realized they needed grace and mercy, they were trying to show grace and mercy to this woman. And not only is God gracious enough to love us and call us His own despite how messy you are, He uses us. And Just take a look around this room real quick. I know it's uncomfortable, especially if you're in the front looking back at people. It's weird. Just, just go ahead and do it. This is, this, is, this is who God has redeemed. This is who God has put together as a church to serve and do His work. It's crazy, isn't it? But this is God's heart to use us. And not only does God love us and redeemed us, He wants to use us for His purposes and to further His kingdom. That's amazing. What an amazing God we serve. Should we not show the same grace and mercy that we've been shown? These people were very quick to withhold grace and mercy until guess what they realized? They needed grace and mercy themselves. Christ has shown us grace. We're commanded to show grace to others. Christ showed mercy on us. He, he died for us. We need to have mercy on others. The fruit of living a forgiven life is reciprocating the same love and forgiveness that has been shown us. Does this describe you lately? Have you been showing the same grace and mercy that God has shown you? Just think about who's in your life. And there's always one person. And maybe there's multiple for some of you. Think of the person in your life that God has placed. Right? Maybe that, that person that maybe drives you crazy. This person that God is showing you, you need to show grace and mercy. You need to love. It's not easy, is it? But this is what God has called us to do. Or are you trapped in a prison of bitterness and unforgiveness? Because this truly is a prison. Unforgiveness is a prison that will eat at you and torture you daily. Are you loving the way Christ loves you? And you might be thinking, well, I'm not capable of loving that way. Well, you're right. We're not. But with the Holy Spirit, we can. So, yeah, we can love people the way Christ loves us because we have the Spirit of God living in our hearts. So are you loving like Jesus? The people in this story, they saw the fault of this woman before seeing the faults in their own hearts, and it's very easy to do the same thing. I'm great at this. I've mastered this. I've mastered the art of seeing the flaws in other people while having so many flaws myself. Not only that, but the very things that drive me crazy in other people are things that I do myself. That's just the way it is. This is why Christ is telling us we need to take our eyes off of ourselves and we need to show the same grace and mercy that God has shown us. And before we share in communion today, this is a great time. Evaluate your heart. Is there anything in your heart that you need to seek forgiveness for, that you need to repent of? What is it in your heart? Let's look at verses 10 through 11. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So Jesus stands up. He sees this woman. Everyone left. He asks her, Is anyone here to accuse you? She says, No. And he said, Okay, I don't accuse you either. I don't condemn you. Go. Now, there's so much to unpack here. I I see five things here. Number one, we see that the redeemed life in Jesus Christ is a life that no longer is bound under accusation. Jesus did not accuse this woman for the sin she committed. That's amazing. For those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we no longer have an accusation to live under. The accusations that Satan brings against us, they're no longer valid because Jesus has made us right with God through our faith in Him. And this is a great reminder for us because many Christians, they live in shame and they live in the accusations of the enemy and they don't walk in the forgiveness and freedom of Christ when Jesus had paid the ultimate price for us. He redeemed us. 
The devil will always try to remind you of your failures in your past life and your mistakes and all the things you've done wrong and all the things you said that you shouldn't have said. He's always going to bring these things to your remembrance. He's an accuser. But through our faith in Jesus, his accusations are no longer valid because the blood of Jesus is enough to cover and atone for how many sins? All of our sins. Christian that's living in bondage to sin and failures is a Christian not walking in the freedom won through Christ's blood on the cross. And we need to be Christians walking in victory, not Christians living in shame and accusation. And maybe you're here today and you need to be reminded of the love, mercy, and grace that's in Jesus. You need to, rem- you need to be reminded that Jesus has forgiven you of your sins. You're not bound by it anymore. That's how deeply He loves us. That's how deeply He paid the price for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Jesus paid the price. There's no condemnation for us anymore. Through our faith in Jesus and through repentance, He's forgiven us. In that same chapter of Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 34, Paul said, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. This is the God we serve. God has justified us through Jesus Christ, through our faith in Him. So the redeemed life is one without accusation. Jesus told this woman He did not accuse her. That's amazing. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. I have bad news for you. You are guilty of your sins. But I have great news for you. Your sins can be atoned for through your faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus already died for your sins, past, present, and future. And through your faith in Him, you can be forgiven. But if you refuse to seek Jesus and surrender Him, then you are taking it upon yourself to pay for your sins yourself. And the only way you can do that is to spend an eternity in hell, separated from God forever. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, what's keeping you from freedom? What is keeping you from being free from the sin and the bondage that's been enslaving you your whole life? What what is keeping you from the freedom in Christ? The second point I see in these verses, forgiveness is a result of, of true repentance. Now, we're not told explicitly by John in this passage that this woman cried out for forgiveness, but we do see that this woman acknowledged Jesus as what? Lord. When Jesus said, is there any to accuse you? She said, no one, Lord. She's acknowledging Him that He's Lord. To acknowledge Jesus as Lord is to acknowledge Him as Savior. To acknowledge He's Savior is to acknowledge you need saving. And so though John doesn't imply it, we have the implication that this woman was have repentance in her heart because Jesus said he didn't condemn her. And so this is a good implication of what this woman's heart was full of, repentance. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So what is the sin in your heart that you need to repent of? I have great news. Jesus paid the price and he's offering forgiveness. The third point I see in these verses is the fruit of true repentance is a forsaking of sin. So we saw forgiveness is a result of true repentance, but the fruit of true repentance is a forsaking of sin. There are many people who try to distort God's grace and they say, well, I'll commit that sin and then I'll repent later because I know God will forgive me. People, many people are trying to twist the grace of God and Paul wrote of this matter in Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 2. He said, should we continue in sin that God's grace might abound? Certainly not. In other translations, it says, God forbid. No. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? True repentance is being repulsed by sin. And that's not to say that we're not going to stumble into sin again. We're imperfect. We will sin again. 
But true repentance is having a hatred for sin. Do you hate sin? Do you see sin the same way that God sees it? Are are you repulsed by it? Or have you become numb to sin? Have you become numb to evil? Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 says this, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses, and watch this, forsakes them will have mercy. True repentance is a heart that says, Lord, forgive me, and I don't want to have any part in this sin. The fourth point I see in these verses is the fruit of forgiveness is a life lived as though we never sinned. When Jesus told this woman to go, he told this woman, go and live without accusation. You don't need to live in the bondage of the mistakes that you've made. Now, I need to preface this because this is important. Sometimes for our sin, we need to pay restitution. Sometimes there's repercussions for our sin. That's by our own doing. That's not God's punishment on us. Sometimes there are repercussions based on the sins we've done. But when Jesus sent this woman, he said, go live as though you've never sinned. Why? Because he didn't accuse or condemn this woman. And it's kind of hard for us to comprehend, but when God forgives our sins, he's taken them and he's cast them out of his presence. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And east and west is an infinite distance. It doesn't meet up again. God's remembered our sins no more after we've repented of them. So how does God view us then? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the what? The righteousness of God in him. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our shame. He sees the righteousness of Christ. We've been made right with God through our faith in him. And the last point I see in these verses If we're going out forgiven by Jesus, we must show the same grace and mercy that's been shown us. We must show the same forgiveness. And we recently talked about this in Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus told us we must forgive as we've been forgiven, or else if we do not forgive, we will not be forgiven. That's intense words by Jesus, and I don't think we, we, I think we underplay and downplay that many times. Jesus said, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. We need to show the same grace and mercy that's been shown us. We need to forgive because we've been forgiven by Jesus. And so who is it in your life? Again, I'm asking the question, who is it in your life that you need to show grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness to? Who is it in your life that you need to reconcile with? Now's a great time to do this before we partake in communion. If you have something against a brother or sister in Christ today, you have to reconcile with them. We need to show the same mercy and grace that we've been shown. God has called us to be a unified church, not to be a divided one, to love one another. And I was reminded of this this week in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. John said, He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says this, He who says he abides in Christ ought himself also to walk just as he walks. And if we're to live out this forgiven life that we've been given in Jesus, then we must show the same love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness that has been shown us. I recently read this quote this week, and I really like it. It's by Spurgeon. He said, if the Lord Jesus Christ can put up with you, you ought to be able to put up with anybody. That's a true statement. Although that's not where it ends, because Jesus doesn't just put up with us. He loves us. He shows mercy to us. He says, oh, you fell flat on your face. Oh, you did that sin that you told me you'd never commit again. I still love you. This is the grace that Jesus has shown us. And we're called to show the same grace. So I'll wrap up with this, and then we'll we'll take communion together. We looked at this this story, verses 1 through 11 in John chapter 8. We saw the religious leaders come, and they try to trap Jesus. And they bring this adulterous woman before Jesus. 
And they want Jesus to enact punishment on her. They want to bring an accusation against Jesus. They want his ministry to end. They want to silence him. But what does Jesus respond with? He responds with forgiveness and mercy. And he shows us how we're called to live a forgiven life. To live a forgiven life means that we live in the freedom of Christ. We know who we are in Christ. We forsake sin. And we show the same grace and mercy that has been shown us. And lastly, if you're, not here, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, again, I want to ask the question, what's keeping you back from freedom? If you surrender your life to Jesus, you'll find the forgiveness and mercy that only Jesus Christ can bring. Because your sin will lead, nothing, lead to nothing but death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you, There is forgiveness to be found, just like this woman found, and just like many of us in here who have given our lives to Jesus, we have found. But you'll only find this in Jesus. Nothing else will satisfy your heart, and nothing else will bring the forgiveness and the life that Jesus brings. And so, as we think about this thought of what Jesus did for this woman, what Jesus did for us, as communion's being passed out, this is a good reminder of why we take communion. I love how God led us to these verses to go over today on Communion Sunday because in these verses we see what Jesus has done. For someone completely undeserving, He showed mercy and grace to. And for us as Christians, this is what Jesus has done for us. This is why we celebrate communion. Right? Communion is not merely just a time where we just think that Jesus died. No, it's a time of celebration. We celebrate the freedom we've been given in Jesus. We celebrate the fact that just as Jesus told this woman, go out, I don't condemn you. This is what we are celebrating, that we can go out these doors no longer condemned, no longer accused, no longer in shame, because Jesus' blood is enough to atone us of all of our sins. This act of communion, it's an act for the believer. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would ask that you don't partake in this. This is for the believer in Jesus Christ. Because the, the partaking of communion is to celebrate that our lives have been redeemed and reconciled to God through our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we take this to celebrate the new life we've been given in Him. We take this to celebrate that the blood of Jesus is enough to atone us of all of our sins, to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. That just like this woman, she can live her life as though she's never sinned because this is what Christ has done for us. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, he said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes again. And this is what we're doing as we partake in communion together. We're proclaiming the death and the resurrection of Jesus, what Jesus did for us on the cross. His blood's enough to cover and atone us of all of our sins. We're declaring that we're free and we're no longer bound by the power of sin. And so as you have your communion, we're going to partake in it together and I'm going to lead us in prayer. But I, I just ask that you just take some time and you just evaluate your heart. Communion is a celebration. We celebrate what Christ has done for us, but we need to take it in a manner that's worthy. We need to take it in a pleasing manner to God. And if you're here today as a Christian and your heart's full of sin, it's full of of bondage, sin that you've not repented of, then maybe communion's not for you to partake of today. And if you're here today as a Christian and there's someone in your life that you need to seek forgiveness for something you've said or done, or if there's reconciliation that needs to be had in your life, now's the time to do that before partaking in communion. Because the act of communion is a celebration, but we must evaluate our hearts. And so what is it in your heart or in your life that you need to repent of? What is the sin that has been separating you from Jesus? Now's the time to just take and just ask God to search your heart. And maybe there's nothing, right, that comes to your mind. Pray as David prayed. David said, search me, O God, and try me. See if there's any wicked way in me. 
And God will reveal it to you. But just take this time, evaluate your heart, and not just evaluate your heart, but remember what Jesus has done for us. Remember the freedom we've been given. Remember what Jesus has done for us, just like he's done for this woman. Go out. I don't accuse you anymore. I don't accuse you. You're free. So just take this time and pray, and then we'll partake together.